Welcome to Charity Village Connects. I'm your host, Mary Barrel. That's the sound of a hummingbird pollinating our world and making it a better place. The hummingbird is Charity Village's logo because we strive, like the industrious hummingbird, to make connections across the nonprofit sector and help make positive change. Over this series of podcasts, we'll explore topics that are vital to the nonprofit sector in Canada. Topics like diversity, equity, and inclusion, mental health in the workplace, the gap in female representation in leadership, and many other subjects crucial to the sector. We'll offer insight that will help you make sense of your life as a nonprofit professional, make connections to help navigate challenges, and support your organization to deliver on its mission. In this episode, a home in government. For years, many nonprofit leaders have been calling for better representation within the federal government. The hope is for a sector that has as great an impact on government policies as it does on the people and causes it serves. We'll delve into the campaign for a federal home in government for the charitable sector and how, if successful, this could improve nonprofits' influence on policy that affects them directly and indirectly. We'll also hear from the first parliamentary secretary for community development and nonprofits in British Columbia to find out more about her work and how a home in government actually looks in practice. I can see why the sector's been advocating for a long time for a home in government because a lot of the issues that this nonprofit sector deals with are sticky issues within government, whether it's to do with the administration of grants and the kind of overly bureaucratic responses that they have to deal with. The folks who are really leaning towards this idea of a home in the provincial government are thinking it would confirm the value and the status of the sector and there is a gap in terms of really putting that name on something more substantial for the nonprofit sector. I'm really disturbed by the fact that the government's relationship with the sector is so fragmented, so siloed, but there are underlying challenges that are shared by the entire sector that cannot be resolved department by department. We need a table, a common table in a department of the government that is all-encompassing. Right now, charities can contact any government department and talk to them and do what they need to do. But if you have one home in government, you might end up with a situation where every government department says, oh, well, please go to the home in government, thank you. And that's a convenient excuse for people not to talk to charities. So I would say the more that we do collective advocacy, the more that we prioritize those top few things that we all agree on, the more successful we will be. And that doesn't mean that individual organizations still can't advocate for the things that they want to see for their own organization or for their own community. But I think we do need to identify some of those big priorities that we have. According to the Philanthropist Journal, the charitable and nonprofit sector contributes over 8% of total Canadian gross domestic product, or GDP. To put this in perspective, it's a similar value to that of mining and oil and gas extraction, not to mention the approximately 2 million jobs and incalculable social impact the sector generates. 
Of course, natural resources have their own minister and ministry, as do transport, tourism, housing diversity, and inclusion, and many other aspects of our economic and social well-being. Noticeable by its absence, however, is a specific place in government for the advocacy of non-profit interests and issues. Global Medic is by any metric a Canadian success story. For over 20 years, the Toronto-based charity has helped relief efforts in the Philippines, Haiti, and now Canada after Hurricane Fiona. But the group's founder says the federal government's matching funding pledge is creating unnecessary competition among charities seeking donations. When you create a matching fund that only benefits one agency, it comes at the expense of other humanitarian agencies that are responding. This means it'll negatively impact their operations. The sector needs to be much more engaged in policy because there's some huge policy changes that will need to come. It needs to be seen that can work and speak as a sector. And it needs that comprehensive way of thinking across the sector, that audacious, inventive working with government. There are longstanding historical antecedents for the lack of a specific department or agency in government, either federally or in many provinces, that is dedicated to sustaining and growing a healthy nonprofit sector in Canada. As Europeans established settlements in what became known as Upper, Lower, and Atlantic Canada, they also applied old-world thinking to governance matters, including education and social services. Poor laws, dating back to the Elizabethan era, required municipal or county governments in Atlantic Canada to fund basic social welfare, with the province only contributing during crises, such as cholera outbreaks or major fires. In Lower Canada, the Catholic Church continued the dominant role it played in France as the provider of services to the poor. In Upper Canada, meanwhile, only the deserving poor, such as those with mental health issues, were considered worthy of government support. The rest were expected to rely on family or independent charities. Recent events have put a sharp focus on the importance of the nonprofit sector in supporting a more equitable, more diverse society in Canada. With COVID-19 posing one of the most dramatic public health challenges in our collective memory, those living close to the financial edge pre-pandemic found themselves turning to charities in unprecedented numbers. To its credit, the sector responded to these needs while facing sharp declines in both revenue generation and staffing levels. At the same time, however, the last few years have exposed weaknesses and limitations in how nonprofits operate. Back in 2006, 25% of tax filers donated to some charitable cause. By 2019, that was down to 19%, and it's only expected to get worse. In this current year, 25% of Canadians expect to give less in 2022 than they did in 2021. But at the same time, 26% of Canadians expect to use or are already using charitable services to meet basic needs. The bottom line here, donations are down. The pandemic's impact on our daily lives and the adjustments it required, everything from how we shop, how we work, and how we learn, has activated a desire for change within almost all aspects of our society. For nonprofits, such change includes the possibility of a more modern, more equitable, more unified approach to how the charitable sector operates. 
And for many sector leaders, that change begins with a stronger voice in government. Annika Volton is Executive Director of Impact Organizations of Nova Scotia, also known as IONS, a nonprofit that champions the community impact sector and the vital services and work these organizations carry out in the province. I asked her about the early days of COVID-19 in her region and how this public health crisis inspired nonprofits to work together in a way they hadn't before. We did do a first survey, I think, in April 2020 timeframe, and then conducted that research in kind of at an eight-month interval. No surprise that there was a lot of rising demand for services felt, especially in subsectors like social services under nonprofits. And at the same time, fewer resources. And we saw everything from needing to purchase new technology or new PPE, burnout and fatigue and loss of volunteers and staff turnover and things like that. We also saw a lot of folks reporting new collaborations. I know one stat that really struck me was that in the first survey, there was a question around, you know, are you working collaboratively with others to help navigate through the pandemic? And the response was somewhere in the 10% vicinity, and that quadrupled by the fall. That is something that we're really noticing in a sector that has a bit of a stereotype for not collaborating sometimes, and the doors were kind of pushed wide open around that. And I think in terms of government supports, we did some analysis around what were the groups that were hit the hardest. And there were different federal funding opportunities, the emergency fund delivered through Red Cross and United Way. Later in this episode, we'll hear from Senator Ratna Omidvar, whose Bill S-216 has helped pave the way for a loosening of the Income Tax Act in terms of how charities can work with frontline community groups and organizations that are not registered charities. For Annika Volton, there was a significant moment when the Nova Scotia government seemed to recognize the important role played by these unofficial organizations. It's not entirely dissimilar to Bill S-216 in the sense that a lot of them required charitable status to be able to distribute funds to. And so we found that in particular, voluntary groups and non-registered charities were the most vulnerable. And here the provincial government did kind of acknowledge that and provide some targeted supports to those groups, which was helpful. And I think for some donations from the public and private donors increased because they could see more visibly perhaps the role of this sector in helping to support community members. According to Annika, a home in government for a nonprofit organization like hers could provide both stability in the sector and a means of bypassing the often complicated route that must be taken in order to actually speak with influential officials. I think here anyway, and I'm probably not alone working at a provincial level, is there's more kind of discussion or interest in what could that mean with the province. But from a federal level, it's mirrored in a lot of ways in the sense that what it would mean is a coordinated and integrated view of the sector. And I think there's perhaps a better job done at serving the various subsectors of nonprofits. But what I find often is missing is that kind of system level perspective of who's really looking at the financial mechanisms, how the sector is structured, funded, how governance operates, what the accountability mechanisms are, etc. really from that macro level. 
I think it's probably the case in a lot of sectors because it does get a little bit more challenging to advocate nationally the further you're removed from Ottawa. I've only been with IONS for a year and a half, so I'm, I'm kind of new to the national ecosystem, but there is a group of people like myself in kind of leadership roles at, in these umbrella type of organizations that meet regularly with Imagine Canada and others. And I'm appreciating that, that opportunity to be aware, hear from others, and kind of feed in local perspectives to what is emerging from a federal policy agenda. There's been a movement in Annika's home province of Nova Scotia to create a provincial home and government for the nonprofit sector. But views are mixed as to whether that would prove more effective in providing a unified voice to the sector or result in creating more silos and disconnection. I guess the closest thing right now is we have a provincial ministry of communities, culture, tourism, and heritage. And so the minister of that department is also the minister for the voluntary sector. We've raised this conversation there around sector transformation. Would it be really helpful to have a home in the provincial government? And there are mixed views on that idea. So to give you a bit of a flavor for that, the folks who are really leaning towards this idea of a home in the provincial government are thinking it would confirm the value and the status of the sector. We have a department of business, keeps changing its name, but some form of that. And there is a gap in terms of really putting that name on something more substantial for the nonprofit sector. There are folks who think it could lead to a more of a horizontal approach, because right now there's funding going out the doors from almost every department to this sector, but it's not necessarily coordinated. But those who are a little more critical of the idea are wondering, you know, would that really help or would it actually result in more silos? You know, you have to go there to think about nonprofits and some thinking, you know, maybe it's not a home in government or a seat in government, but it's a seat at the table. And is there a different kind of approach that we should be thinking about? And some people are thinking about past examples, whether that was a home for youth or other things that maybe didn't end up being as effective as hoped. And so lastly, I'll say that there's a very strong sense that we need to ensure that we retain and maintain the diversity of this sector. So I keep mentioning subsectors, there's 11 of them, and they all play a different kind of role in society. And it's very clear that people aren't really looking for homogeneity. They want to keep that multiplicity. And whatever the structure looks like around that, we need to be conscious that we don't try to paint everybody with the same brush. I'm so excited to be here today because today is truly a good day for the nonprofit sector in BC. In the late 2020, I was sworn in as the first parliamentary secretary responsible for the nonprofit sector. My government role is the first of its kind in Canada, and it shows that our government believes in the work of the nonprofits and what the sector's doing. In November 2020, an announcement about a new role for a British Columbia MLA was anything but routine, at least for the charitable sector in the province. Nikki Sharma was to become Parliamentary Secretary for Community Development and Nonprofits. In other words, the charitable sector in BC now had a home in government. 
She became a part of a very small group of elected officials in Canada whose responsibilities encompass, quote, acting as the advocate and the key point of contact within government, end quote, for the nonprofit sector. The origins of Nikki Sharma's appointment may be instructive for nonprofits in other provinces who are looking for a home in government. So I asked her how this new parliamentary secretary position came about. Once again, the pandemic played a decisive role in the BC government deciding to commit to an idea that was years in the making. First of all, it started with the many years of advocacy from BC's nonprofits, along with, I know, others across Canada to say that we need a home in government. I think it was really highlighted through COVID. The COVID impacts that the nonprofit sector was facing were very different than other sectors. And I think we've all seen it, that it's been different, and certainly people listening would understand. But they were asking the BC government at that time, where's our home? Where do we go to to talk about how COVID's impacting us and what our needs are? So that really pointed out to the Premier that we needed to have something that addressed that, and hence my role came about from that. So it was one of those, I think, positive outcomes of COVID, that the nonprofit sector has somebody that's there to advocate for their needs. We gave a lot of thought to how we wanted to structure this. It's a bit of a startup within government. I have to say that a first big part of my first year, relationship building, but also work within government to understand and to highlight the impacts of the nonprofit sector across the province. I think it's something that I feel like if I'm successful in my job, the nonprofit sector will feel like they have their seat at the table when it comes to all the policy that impacts them, having a better partnership with government and recovering from COVID. With her own involvement in community and charitable groups stretching back to her high school years, Nikki Sharma was able to lend an understanding ear to the nonprofit leaders eager to speak with her. What they told her will likely sound familiar to those who have advocated for more sector representation in government. I think we really spent a lot of time listening in the first six months to a year because what we needed to understand is what the key priorities were from the nonprofit sector. So what did the sector say that was top for them for government to work on? I think that most of the first year was COVID related. So what we noticed was that some of the funding that was coming out and sometimes not intentionally excluded nonprofits. So some of the COVID recovery funding was blind to the impact of nonprofits or excluded nonprofits. So we really wanted to focus on what was happening at the time in government, which was us responding to the COVID pandemic. And we're still doing that. And so we got to work right away with that, listening and and designing engagements that fit with making sure we were listening to all the different parts of the sector and engaging across the province was really important. In terms of my office internally within government, I see my work as cross-ministry. I exist within one ministry in government, really nonprofits are partners or work across most ministries in our government. So my work really had to address that by engaging every ministry. So we knew we needed to structure it that way internally within government. We also knew that there would be something about elevating the discussion about the importance of the nonprofit sector within government and without. So there's like a public aspect to that of just talking to British Columbians about how important the nonprofit sector is to our province and also to people internally in government. Because I think oftentimes the sector is full of a lot of hardworking but very humble people that talk mostly about how they're trying to make the world better and what their impact is on the people they serve and not about how important they are 
to the province. BC declares a state of emergency. We had more rain in two days than we normally get in an entire November. Added strain on the supply chain. New difficulties getting goods in and out of BC. British Columbians have seen a lot of crises this past year with natural disasters, climate crises and the pandemic. And the first groups to be at the door to help have always been the nonprofit leaders across the province. And I feel like it's my job to make sure that that's elevated and seen for the impact it is having on BC. So it helps us to understand how we need to be partners with those nonprofit organizations so we can respond and increase the well-being of British Columbians. With many years of advocacy from BC's charitable sector helping to create Nikki Sharma's role in the provincial legislature, I was curious to learn more from the government's perspective as to why the time had come for a parliamentary secretary dedicated to nonprofits. I talked about the impact that the sector has on the province, so I think that having a home in government helps elevate that. But really, almost every policy that will come out of a provincial government or a government will either involve a nonprofit partner, impact a nonprofit, or be benefited from the work of a nonprofit because government is very much aligned with the principles of a lot of what the nonprofits are doing in the community. So without a home in government that can help understand that at a policy level and at a response level, it really what I was noticing, particularly under the COVID lens, those impacts were blind to a lot of government policy, right? That they weren't being seen because there was no voice to say internally, well, this is what is happening with the nonprofit sector and this is why it's important and this is how we have to respond. So I can see why the sector's been advocating for a long time for a home in government because a lot of the issues that this nonprofit sector deals with are sticky issues within government, whether it's to do with the administration of grants and the overly bureaucratic responses that they have to deal with. So you need to have some kind of sustained lens inside to actually figure out how we piece through solving those issues in a more complete way. So there's plenty of work to do. But I mean, if I wasn't here, for example, there wouldn't be a COVID and resiliency recovery fund that was for the nonprofit sector as a whole, because we heard and listened to the impacts on the sector. We wouldn't be thinking about how we do grants differently and how multi-year funding is so important and all those things that we heard in our engagement. We don't have any permanent structures in government or the Canada Revenue Agency. The fact is we don't have a home in government. And because we don't, we don't have any kind of structured dialogue that is ongoing. The government has a blind eye to the sector. In many ways, it just simply doesn't see the sector as a sector. And because of that, we have lacked investments in the key infrastructural supports of the sector. At the federal level, the status of nonprofits and charities is tightly bound to the Income Tax Act. As noted by Emily Jensen, writing for ImagineCanada.ca, the Canada Revenue Agency decides which organizations can claim charitable status under the Act. Incorporation of nonprofits can take place federally or provincially, but in either case, the government regulates organizations without taking an active role in the creation of policies that address issues and concerns faced by the sector. As Ms. Jensen explains, the status quo creates a negative impact on nonprofits in a number of ways. For example, government may adopt a piece of legislation without taking into account how it might affect charities and nonprofits. Similarly, nonprofits may feel they're being left out of government policies that could benefit them. 
such as programs that encourage innovation. And if organizations wish to raise issues relating to government grants and contributions to nonprofit programs they fund, there's no clear path to do so. In 2019, the report of the Special Senate Committee on the Charitable Sector, entitled Catalyst for Change, called for the establishment of a so-called home and government for the nonprofit sector. Senator Omidvar was a member of the Senate Committee and has continued being a champion of a home in the federal government for the sector. Here she is explaining how a seat for charities and nonprofits could be pulled up to the common table, as she calls it. I'm really disturbed by the fact that the government's relationship with the sector is so fragmented, so siloed. Environmental organizations speak to the Ministry of the Environment. Health organizations speak to the Ministry of Health. Cultural organizations speak to Canadian heritage and so on and so forth. But there are underlying challenges that are shared by the entire sector that cannot be resolved department by department. We need a table, a common table, in a department of the government that is all-encompassing. I really don't care about where, but we need a home in government and a home in government with a small skeleton staff attached to it whose job it would be to act as the interlocutor between the sector and all the departments of the government on overriding, overarching issues such as digital technology, artificial intelligence, the human resources in the sector, fairness and other things. So if we could have one table that would set the stage for these conversations, then we could also have enabling mechanisms to lift all boats, not just a few boats at a time. And that is why we need a home in the government. In its report, the Senate Special Committee on the Charitable Sector recommends that the Minister of Innovation, Science and Technology create a regular venue for the facets of the federal government to interact and collaborate with this diverse sector. This venue would be supported by a secretariat for the charitable and nonprofit sector. Will the federal government follow the lead of British Columbia and create such a role? I asked Nikki Sharma for her views. I'm hopeful. I'm really hopeful. I'm excited that in addition to my mandate, which happened after a year in, was to help to work with my federal counterparts and the federal government to advocate for the needs of the BC nonprofit sector. And what I've heard from the nonprofits in BC is exactly that. We need a voice and a home in government. And so that's certainly something that I'll be telling and sharing with my federal counterparts as well. I think it would be amazing to think about what could be accomplished for the sector if every level of government had the same lens that I'm able to do when I advocate for the sector within government. Not only would the sector be stronger, but also you think about Canada would be stronger. I always say that the people that I meet are the type of people that don't look away from problems. They look right at them and they roll up their sleeves and they try to figure out, how do I solve this for my society, for the environment, for the well-being of my neighbor? And that's a beautiful thing to invest in. And so having a home in government has really helped us put that lens as a government. And I hope that every jurisdiction in Canada follows suit. I think it would be a great thing for the country. To be clear, 
Not everyone with close ties to nonprofits feels that the creation of a specific ministry or position within government to liaise with the sector is a good thing. Mark Bloomberg is a partner at the law firm Bloomberg Siegel LLP in Toronto and works almost exclusively advising nonprofits and registered charities on their work in Canada and abroad. One of Mark's primary concerns is that a home in government for the sector could actually end up providing even less access to policymakers than the current situation affords. I get worried because I think, what happens if there's a minister who doesn't really care or has a view that's antithetical to the charity sector? Which could happen. And then you're stuck. You have to be in this one place. Right now, charities can contact any government department and talk to them and do what they need to do. But if you have one home in government, you might end up with a situation where every government department says, oh, well, please go to the home in government. Thank you. And that's a convenient excuse for people not to talk to charities. And then that home in government could be good or not good. There's a lot of concerns with that, what seems like a little proposal. But when you look at how could they decide that all this money was going to be invested in the charity sector in one charity, I was a supporter of the idea a few years back, but I have seen what has happened in the UK and in Australia in terms of some of the stuff. And I have a lot of worries because it's amazing how just changing one person at the top, whether it's a charity commission, whether it's some sort of ministry You change one person and all of a sudden, the whole tenor of the whole thing can change, the direction can change. And also anything done by government tends to have some real costs. I'm a big fan, by the way, of government getting involved. If you want to get a million people out of poverty, government is the best way to do it. But if you want to do certain tasks discreetly, sometimes government is not the best way to do it and coordinating things. It's just very expensive. So I think we have to realize there's going to be a big cost. It will be a system that will have some lack of flexibility, let's just say. It'll be what it is, and it's going to be very much dependent on who's there. And so the risk of having it, I think, is greater than the not having it. Mark Bloomberg also makes the point that a home in government for nonprofits might end up being in a neighborhood they would rather not live in. I find it interesting all these people are saying, we want a home in government. And yet, they're not sure where that home is going to be. What happens if they say it's Department of National Defense? Are you going to be happy with that? I mean, maybe that's good. It'll be good for some groups that deal with disasters, right? But you get what I'm saying? Like, people are just running like lemmings off a cliff. They're not actually thinking through the stuff. So what will happen is we'll have a situation. I mean, I love the Australian Charity Commission, and they brought on a head who is a very controversial far-right sort of guy, and it changes the whole tenor of the thing. So anyway, I hope we don't have to deal with it, but if there is a home in government, which home will it be, and is it going to be a comfortable home for the charity sector? And I certainly hope if it happens that it's successful, but I am worried that it probably will not be successful looking at some of the other countries and how it's worked out. In the budget, the government revealed it's giving the Canadian Revenue Agency more power to audit charities to make sure they're following the rules, including disclosing where they're getting their funding from. But is the government targeting the wrong charities? Is it using the CRA for political means? Or are the changes to charitable rules around disclosing donors fair and needed? Back in 2012, inspired by similar movements in the United States and New Zealand, 12 Canadian environmental charities asked supporters to darken their websites as a silent protest against a proposed bill by the Harper government that they claimed would effectively weaken environmental protection measures while silencing the voices of Canadians opposed to the bill. Of particular concern 
was the $8 million the government gave to the Canada Revenue Agency to audit charities, a move that many viewed as a means of creating a chilling effect on political advocacy in the sector. Following such an audit of a registered charity and the CRA's finding that the organization was not in compliance with rules on political activities, an Ontario court in 2018 found that the Income Tax Act's limits on political expression by nonprofits infringed, without justification, the right to freedom of expression under the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. In early 2019, after federal legislation was passed enabling charities to be involved in public policy dialogue and development activities, so long as the activities furthered the organization's stated charitable purpose, the CRA issued draft administration guidance for charities that reflected this new legislation. With a home in government for the nonprofit sector, would advocacy for changes to public policy as it pertains to charitable purposes become less fraught with peril for organizations? I put that question to Kathy Taylor, Executive Director of ONN, the Ontario Nonprofit Network. Her response emphasized the power of collective action by organizations who may feel vulnerable going it alone. I think there's always work to be done in our sector to be comfortable and develop the skills for advocacy, for sure. And we've tried to create some tools and training and things on how to advocate as a sector. But a couple of things come to mind. First of all, that individual organizations can always be vulnerable. If they're advocating to a funder or to someone that may have regulatory control over something that they're doing. So the power of collective advocacy, of networked advocacy, whether it's at a local level with a group of organizations in a geographic community, or whether it's at a subsector level, like all of the organizations that provide food bank services or food security get together, or at a provincial level, like with ONN, is really valuable because it takes the risk off of an individual organization. So I would say the more that we do collective advocacy, the more that we prioritize those top few things that we all agree on, the more successful we will be. And that doesn't mean that individual organizations still can't advocate for the things that they want to see for their own organization or for their own community. But I think we do need to identify some of those big priorities that we have and share our key messages, sing from the same songbook, so that when we're all talking to elected officials and public servants, that we're all saying the same thing. And so there's a big opportunity for us to definitely do a lot more of that. I also think that the rules around advocacy, the lobbying registrations we have, the Election Financing Act, they are problematic. They do put the chill and fear in organizations and their boards of directors. And so we have to continue to advocate that it's okay for charities and nonprofits to be advocates. It's not okay to be partisan, but it's okay to advocate for public policy. In fact, if you're doing food security work, who better to advocate for food security issues? Because you know the issues on the ground. And nonprofits and charities are really that bridge between communities and government. And so we actually have a really important role to play in advocacy. So we do have to make sure that those rules don't scare people away at the same time as encourage organizations to develop the skills and see advocacy as fundamentally one of the core strategies to meet their mission. Kathy Taylor also echoed the need for a point person within government for the sector and provided a vivid illustration of the complexities her organization faces when it comes to government relations. 
I do think that one of the dilemmas we had both provincially and federally during the pandemic was that there was no single place to go to advocate for what we were hearing that the sector needed. So in Ontario, for example, we work with 16 ministries, separate ministries, separate ministers' offices, separate public servants on issues that range from police records checks to labor market data to transfer payment reform and grants and contributions. And no one has the overall responsibility to think about the health and well-being of the sector as a whole. They're all very focused, as their ministry or department is, on a specific slice of that. And when you see how other industries are able to get that kind of support, because they do have that, And my best example in Ontario is that there is an associate minister for small business. And during the pandemic, that minister had an advisory committee of small businesses giving him advice on what this small business community needed. And we were missing that key piece. And to their credit, the Ontario government invited ONN to sit at that table. So we were able to provide some input. But as one of many small businesses, um, there wasn't a specific advisory table of any sort for the nonprofit and charitable sector. So I think we missed out on huge opportunities and had to really fight to make sure that the wage subsidy, for example, imagine Canada fought hard to make sure that charities and nonprofits were included in the wage subsidy and the rent subsidy. We really had to fight our way in rather than have that champion, have that data. So I think it would make an enormous difference. We're very supportive of a federal home and government campaign and think it's complementary to having a provincial home and government as well. An opinion piece in the Hill Times states that a nonprofit home and government would strengthen the sector as a whole. It would create the kind of federal policy framework, programs, and investments that have been used successfully in other economic sectors, like transportation, agriculture, and small business, all of which have dedicated federal ministers and portfolios. This piece is authored by leaders from nonprofit networks representing organizations across the country, including Kathy Taylor of ONN, whom you've just heard. Last year, this group joined together to support a shared mission. The creation of, quote, stronger, more resilient and impactful nonprofit and charitable sector for the benefit of all people. They call their group the Nonprofit Coalition. One of its key priorities is the establishment of a home and government where nonprofits and charities have a seat at the policy and decision-making table. As Canada and much of the world continues working towards a post-COVID-19 recovery, the coalition wants to move quickly to capitalize on what they call, quote, a remarkable opportunity to redesign our collective approach for the benefit of all people in this country. I want to thank our guests for joining us and sharing their valuable insights into better representation within the federal government for nonprofits and how such a home could enable the sector to have greater impact on government policies. Be sure to check out our show notes and website to further explore this and other topics. If you'd like to hear the entire conversations with our guests, please visit CharityVillage.com to watch all the video interviews. Charity Village is proud to be the Canadian source for nonprofit news, employment services, crowdfunding, e-learning, HR resources and tools, and so much more. 
please take a moment to check out our website at charityvillage.com. On the next Charity Village Connects podcast, after a challenging year that disproportionately impacted the nonprofit sector, we're bringing you an episode of celebration. Late in 2021, Charity Village launched its inaugural Charity Village Conference and Awards, honoring the commitment, passion, and drive shown by those who make meaningful and outstanding contributions to their organizations and communities during the year. For 2022, we're back to put the spotlight on some very special people whose efforts went above and beyond during this historically difficult time. And for everyone who contacted us with questions about what made this year's winners really stand out, I'll be sitting down with our award recipients to learn their secrets to success and how you too can put their strategies into action at your organization. Celebrating the 2022 award winners next time on Charity Village Connects. Thanks for listening.